I'm Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. I am still firmly seated in my chair. I have not fallen out of my chair. Both buttocks, yep, checked them, still there. So let's get to it. What's in that modeling information after all? Plus, tough questions about censorship and Silicon Valley. Let's get to it. Welcome to the program. Are you still in your chair? Have you fallen from your chair yet? Of course, we have the Ontario modeling numbers as we speak. Press conference is underway as the health table. Now taking some questions after uh, outlining the new modeling. Uh, we can dip into this. Can we go live? I think there's uh, Steiny Brown is back Brown. on the stage. I've covered there's it. Yaffe, actually, Barbara Yaffe. The November modeling had the curve flattening at just under 1,500 cases. And we'll get back to um, that uh, in a moment. We're going to make sure we're on top of what's happening. But I'll take you through what was in the modeling information and why it is that you shouldn't be falling out of your chair, but you should be standing up and shouting. <clears throat> Because there's nothing in this modeling that should come as a surprise to anyone. Here are some of the key findings from the new modeling information. By the way, Doug Ford, you know what I didn't do? You know, you'll, you'll fall off your chair. I did not fall off my chair. I did not fall off my chair. And not because I'm some kind of medical expert that can read this modeling information any differently than anybody else. But I... Listened last time in December, the last time we had one of these, and I listened, and the Ontario government did not. And if there's a reason to fall out of your chair, Doug Ford, it's that. So here are the key findings from the new modeling data. I'm, a, you know, I'm ticked. You know, on Friday I was angry about the way that we roll out information and with this whole standby. Coming up on a special Dofo show later. But this is sobering information. It is it is hard to hear what Dr. Steiny Brown had to say. Here's some of the key findings. Growth in cases has accelerated and is now over 7% on the worst days. Keep in mind that anything over a 5% is, oh my God. That's what the WHO says. I think I think that is technically OMG is anything over five percent. I think that's the technical response. Like that's not good. Forty percent of long-term care homes have active COVID out COVID nineteen outbreaks, and the forecasts suggest more deaths in wave two in long-term care than in wave one. Let me give you some context on that and some numbers here. As of January 9th, there had been 1,119 deaths in LTCs in this province. The projected worst-case scenario is by Valentine's Day, that number will be over 2,600. 1,500 more people will die in long-term care in the worst-case scenario projections released today. If I hear Doug Ford or any member of his government say the term Iron Ring, I am going to scream. Back to the modeling. Mobility, contacts between people have not decreased with the current restrictions. 
no kidding. Really? Shocker. Because in Peel and in Toronto, we have had these lockdown measures for a while now. And guess what did not go down? Contacts between people. Not a surprise. And without significant reductions in contacts, according to the modeling, the health system will be overwhelmed with mortality, and the mortality will exceed the first wave totals. The doctor, in his opening remarks, basically said, you know what's happening in Los Angeles right now? Paramedics are basically being told. They're not basically, just being told. If that person doesn't look like they're going to survive, don't take them to the hospital. We are going to be in a triage situation where doctors are going to decide who lives and who dies. A quarter of hospitals in this province right now have no ICU beds. None. And in the last 24 hours in this province, there have been 41 deaths to COVID-19. As because of COVID-19, 41 deaths. And the modeling shows that we are on the way from an average of 50 deaths a day to 100 deaths a day by the end of February. And if you look at what the health table told the provincial government on December 21st, it's not a whole lot different than what we see here. And again, within this presentation, details about what a hard lockdown is, a real lockdown. And I can go into that. You can actually see these slides. If you are interested in graphs, by the way, you can go and see all of this information uh, online. Just use a Google um, modeling information Ontario. It's right on the website. For example, it shows right here on the graph that Despite some reduced mobility from gray zone res- restrictions, there was a pre-holiday spike. A pre-holiday spike. Who predicted that when the province said, no, we're going to go into lockdown on the 26th? Who predicted that, well, people are going to rush around and do their shopping in malls and areas where they're not from, and that's going to be a problem? Everybody except for the government said that that was going to happen, and it did happen. And also, as you flip through these slides, let me just flip to the one I'm because there's a lot of graphs. If you like graphs, this is this is a good day for you. Here's key components of hard lockdowns in peer jurisdictions, and it runs down the things in places that worked, like Victoria, Australia, France, the UK, Germany, Netherlands, all areas ahead of us on the second wave. And what do you got? You got stay-at-home, movement restrictions, check, 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 all the way across. Non-essential retail closed, schools closed, mandatory masking outdoors, curfew, enforcement. And the areas that have seen success have implemented many of those measures I just mentioned. And what do we have in the province of Ontario? What do we got? Other countries have witnessed the same growth that we have, and they've taken action by enacting and enforcing higher levels of restrictions. And it has worked. That is Dr. Stani Brown this morning, pointing out again, for the second time, what works? 
enforcement, curfew, travel restrictions, clear, concise, consistent messaging. Oh, you think I'm making this up? Let's go back to December 21st, 2020. Here's Dr. Brown again in the previous modeling update. We looked very carefully at the experience in countries like Australia and France, trying to understand the impact of their hard lockdowns that have happened for about four to six weeks. These sorts of hard lockdowns can reduce case numbers uh, in Ontario, we believe, to less than 1,000 per day. That was on December 21st. Dr. Brown pointing out to the provincial government, here's what's worked in peer countries. And the Ontario government did none of it. None. And so today on the DOFO Show, very special time, very special place, the DOFO Show. We will get the announcement of some new restrictions, and here's what we're expecting, that they will change the hours that uh, companies, uh, the retail can operate, the retail that is allowed. Uh, that will be shrunk, that there will be uh, an enforcement of work-from-home orders. I don't know about enforcement, but there will be now all offices will have to close unless you can prove you're essential, so you have to reduce to a skeleton staff. There will be no curfew. It does not appear there will be travel restrictions as, you know, the kind of thing that we've seen in, in some jurisdictions where it's like, you know, you got 90 minutes to leave your house per day. And if, you know, if you don't have a reason to be out, you know, if, you, if your last name starts with C, you can leave, you know, leave the house between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m., all the carters out of the house at that time, and then back in the house. We're not going to get any of that. We're not going to get any of it. And so did you fall off your chair? Doug Ford, did you fall off your chair? You know, you'll, you'll fall off your chair. I don't know about that. And if you hear Doug Ford today at the press conference talk about what we need is the vaccine, we need more, we're out of vaccines, we need the vaccine right away. No one, no one believed or predicted that we would be able to vaccinate our way out of this problem in January. No one believed that. The province knows what the shipment totals are going to be for the vaccine. When we're getting the next shipment, 20,000 this day, 20,000 two weeks later, that's you know, 80, I think it's 80,000, pardon me. So that's a MacGuffin. If you hear that today, that's just shift and blame. And if we don't hear about some real measures soon and some real support, because here's the other thing that you, you might think that these doctors are just all numbers and graphs. Not so. Not so. Because in his presentation, Dr. Brown talks about supports. Supports for people that have to self-isolate. That otherwise, there's a, well, my choice is feed my family or go to work with this cough. Go to work. Donald Trump has left the White House, but just because he's on a trip to the Alamo to visit the border wall, and Donald Trump had a few comments uh, for reporters the first time he has spoken to reporters and taken any questions from reporters since the incident at the Capitol. And the president, as he left at the Air Force Base, says that the second impeachment attempt is creating tremendous anger in America. Here's Donald Trump. It's really a continuation 
of the greatest witch hunt in the history of politics. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Trump, of course, took no responsibility for the incidents in the U.S. Capitol. And you heard him say the words, the greatest witch hunt. Now, that is something that he repeated time and time again on his Twitter feed and in social media. And he can't do that now, of course, because he has been removed from Twitter. He has been removed from Facebook. All of it raises some very troubling questions about who decides who has a legitimate voice to broadcast. I think many of us can agree that Donald Trump is a danger in terms of what he tweets. But then should we allow Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg to make the decision as to who is over the line and when do they make that decision? My next guest is the author of a forthcoming book, Silicon Values, the Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism. Jillian York is on the line. Welcome. What do you make of the banning of Donald Trump? Do you think that that is a good move in itself? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for having me. Um, I think, you know, in itself, we can see this as potentially a good move, um, but but I don't think that we should look, be looking at it in a vacuum because this decision um, follows a decade or more of questionable decisions by these companies um, to remove content that often is very much um, content that we would like to see published, um, content that is you know, considered free expression by most under human rights standards. Um, and so I think that you know, looking at it through the lens of just the Trump decision is part of the problem. Is part of the problem that these companies, um, these companies are, you know, for profit. They are not interested in altruism. They're not interested in bringing us all together. They're interested in us being on their platforms for longer so they can take data from us and sell it to advertisers. Yes. I mean, these are for-profit companies and their interest is, uh, you know, they're profit motivated. And so because of that, um, we, you know, we can't look at this decision and say, oh, yeah, they're doing this for the good of society. Um, you know, they're doing this because it, it's convenient for them to do so now, just a few days before Trump is meant to exit office. Um, at the same time, you know, we know that they have not put sufficient resources into their their work around the world. Um, there are countries that are entirely neglected, languages that are entirely entirely neglected in the content moderation process. What does it mean to take someone like Trump off, but I can name any number of other uh, authoritarian leaders around the world who still have Twitter platforms? Yeah, and I think that this speaks to the um, the degree to which these companies are inherently U.S.-centric. They really are paying so much more attention to what's going on right now in the U.S., which, I mean, of course, is absolutely horrible, um, but much more attention there than they would be to, say, what's happening in India right now or um, what happened in Myanmar a few years ago. That took Facebook several years of being told um, a U.N. investigation and a Reuters blockbuster uh, investigation investigative report um, to get Facebook to act on that. How much does the fact that big tech is under fire with antitrust within the United States and this sort of coming clash between regulators and the lawyers for Facebook, how do you see that fitting into what's happening um, with Donald Trump? 
it's a really great question. I think that the the debate around antitrust, which is happening in the U.S., but also in Europe at the moment, um, is going to impact certain companies more than others. So, you know, when we look at these platforms, we often throw them together as big tech. But really, Facebook and Twitter are vastly different in terms of uh, the, you know, the number of users that they have, but also the number of acquisitions, uh, the, the, their, um, their revenue, et cetera. Um, and so I think that really um, the, the antitrust debate is it's an important one, but it's not going to solve all of the problems with these platforms. We also need them to be more transparent, more accountable, um, and ensure that users have remedy under every circumstance. So what, what's, the, what's the solution going forward? Is it some sort of covenant that we have uh, as users that govern these sites, and, and there would be one that would perhaps govern all sites, whether it was Instagram or whether it was Twitter? It's funny because that conversation's been going on for nearly a decade now. When you said, uh, you know, a user-centered uh, covenant, I think of Rebecca McKinnon's work, The Consent of the Network, uh, a book that came out in 2012. Um, you know, we've been trying to push for these ideas for a long time, the idea that users should be centered in the policymaking and the, the content moderation experience. Um, and yet what we've seen is the exact opposite, this centralized, um, increasingly aligned with certain governments and then, you know, um, happy to comply with other governments. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's time for a user-centered movement. Removing Donald Trump from his platforms and then deplatforming Parler, many have said that all of this, all it will do was would take the extremists and those that we saw um, in the Capitol and move them to other more obscure sites, and they will be more difficult to monitor, and that that would defeat the ability to actually figure out what was happening before it happened, not that that helped at all at the Capitol last week. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there's a valid argument here to be made that um, by kicking, kicking these sites off, it pushes people to the darker corners of the web. And yet, at the same time, we've also seen the, the so-called dark corners of the web kind of rise up in the past few years and take over the mainstream parts of the web. I'm thinking of things like the ways that Gamergate was organized on um, sites like 4chan or some of the, the other... Um, uh, violent events of the past few years were were organized on platforms like 8chan and Parler and Gab. And so um, while that argument does hold weight, there's also a concern that, um, you know, by pushing folks, uh, or, or, sorry, there's a concern that taking down these platforms, um, you know, is, is not really the solution that it's going to have implications for for other sites out there as well. And we've seen that already. I mean, this is not the first site that Amazon has taken down. Amazon kicked WikiLeaks off of its platform nine years ago. Um, they've, they've denied services to the entire citizenry uh, of Iran. Um, and so, you know, I think that we do have to look at um, infrastructure platforms differently than we do like, social media or user-generated content platforms. I often think about the railway barons at the turn of the last century and, and the kind of control that they had over economics and and the, the parallels that we can draw to today and the success in that time was antitrust and actually breaking up the monopolies and breaking up these companies, whether it was Standard Oil or whether it was a rail company. And is that the solution? Must Facebook be broken up do we need that to happen before we can get anywhere? I'm not 
so sure. I mean, I do believe that these com- that Facebook, um, you know, and companies of that size should be broken up, but I'm not sure that that's going to solve some of the fundamental issues that we're talking about right now when it comes to expression. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, we've got the things that, that the majority of the populace, um, or at least right now, seems to want to have taken down hate speech, incitement, violence. And yet on the flip side of that, there's also a huge amount of content that goes down every single day that does not violate the rules, that is wrongfully removed um, or that is removed, you know, at the behest of of governments around the world. Um, And so I think that, you know, antitrust is one great solution to solve some problems, but it's not going to fix that problem. To fix that, we do need to put power back in the hands of users. Uh, it's certainly fascinating, uh, and you can read uh, Jillian's uh, article on technologyreview.com, the uh, headline, Users, Not Tech Executives Should Decide What Constitutes Free Speech Online. Jillian York is an author, and her upcoming book is Silicon Values, The Future of Free Speech Under Surveillance Capitalism. Fascinating conversation. Jillian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Well, stand by. Because coming up, it's the Doug Ford Show. That's right. Doug Ford is standing by with the update on some new recommendations or new restrictions, pardon me, for the province of Ontario. No curfew. Uh Uh-uh. No curfew. That's not part of it. But what will be part of it? Changes in hours for retail. Changes in the number of people who can come to work. Who is allowed to come to work. I think we might be going back to that whole essential list. Remember that essential list when it came out back in March? The first time the government released, this is a list of people who are essential. And everybody read it and thought, "Oh, is anybody not essential? We went deep. He went deep. Doug Ford went deep. He's going to go deep next on the DOFO Show. My name is Alan Carter. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. This is Global News Radio. Join me tonight, by the way, on television. I look great in standard definition. If you have an older television, I really that's where I really shine. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekdays, live starting at noon.